This episode of The Philosopher's Nest is brought to you by 80,000 Hours. Your career is on average 80,000 hours long. That's 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, for 40 years. That's a huge resource. It may be your biggest opportunity to make a difference. 80,000 Hours is a nonprofit that aims to help people find a fulfilling career that makes a positive impact too. They take a philosophically rigorous approach that begins with a precise account of social impact and that yields tangible implications for action. In recent years, 80,000 Hours have provided career coaching to a number of philosophers and have even posted an article on their website outlining the ways in which philosophers can leverage their careers to make a difference. And what's more, everything they provide is free. They're a nonprofit and their only aim is to help you find a fulfilling, high-impact career. If you join the newsletter now, you'll get a free copy of their in-depth career guide sent to your inbox. To get started planning a career that works on one of the world's most pressing problems, sign up now through the link in our episode description, 80,000hours.org slash philosopher's nest. Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Mitchell Barrington, a PhD student at the University of Southern California. Mitchell had some interesting experiences going through two rounds of the graduate admissions cycle before ending up at USC. So he's agreed to come on the show to talk about his experiences, what did and didn't work for him, and his advice for prospective graduate applicants. If after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Mitchell, you can find him on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash mhbarrington, or you can drop him an email at mitchell.barrington at usc.edu. Mitchell Barrington, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thanks for having me. We'll be focusing for much of this episode specifically on the admissions process, your experiences with it, and your advice for prospective applicants. But I'd be really interested in hearing first, what kind of topics in philosophy excite you and what have you been working on recently? Yeah, the stuff I've been working on recently is mainly in ethics, but kind of taking a decision theoretic approach. And so some of the stuff I've worked on is like trying to model deontological theories uh, on a decision theoretic framework. So, you know, if you think that, you know, no amount of headaches uh, justifies you killing someone or torturing a baby or something like that, how are we supposed to have a utility function that represents that? Then also looking at things like the repugnant conclusion. So there's a lot of aggregation problem stuff that uh, I've mainly been looking at and how we can kind of fix our models to get the right answers there. And if I'm not mistaken, you recently published a paper in Utilitas uh, about this stuff. What was that paper on? Yeah, so this paper is um, a reply paper kind of to a paper that was published by Jake Neebel a few years ago where he shows that the repugnant conclusion uh, which is the idea that for any number of lives at a very high welfare level, there's some much greater number of lives that are barely worth living that would be better. And uh, this is the result of a lot of uh, normal axiologies that have like, you know, you want to maximize whatever's valuable, but it seems really unintuitive that you could maximize that by having a tiny amount in every life and just like a lot of lives. And so Jake shows that you can extract this result from just having a prospect that's in everyone who might exist, what would be ex ante better for them. You know, the probabilistically, a small number of them are going to get the great lives or, you know, everyone is going to be guaranteed a, a mediocre life. And 
if that probability is small enough, then we seemingly want to say it's in their interest to uh, just take the mediocre life. And there was actually an Oxford DPhil student who wrote a reply to that paper uh, in ethics who So Petra Krasonen, who said, well, if you discount small probabilities all the way to zero, then all of these potential people are just going to ignore the possibility of of getting a great life and uh, just take the mediocre life. And so you can avoid the repugnant conclusion if you just discount small probabilities. And this paper was saying that the, the combination of discounting and having like a superiority theory where you have some quantity of great lives being better than any quantity of mediocre lives is going to run into problems just because of the the weirdness of that pairing. And as a paper that you had published before you started your PhD, how did it kind of spawn for you? Where did it begin? Was it a term paper you wrote for a class or was it just a side project that you had uh, an interest in? Yeah, so my master's was just a, a research master's and so there wasn't any coursework. And so it's actually quite a kind of good gig that you get where you just spend two years working on on research. And I can't remember why I started. Oh, I actually read the rep- reply paper of Kasonin's first and then went back and read the original just because the Kasonin paper is about discounting, which was something that I was already interested in and writing on. And then I just kind of felt like I had something to say about uh, that particular paper. Well, fair enough. I wonder if the paper will come up in some capacity as we go through our next questions. But to turn to the main subject of the interview, which is the admissions process and your experience with it, I'll start off with just asking you, so how did the most recent admissions cycle turn out for you in the end? Yeah, I was very happy with how it went. Yeah, as I said, I applied in 2020 and then I went on and did a master's and then I applied in 2022 and found that the results were very different between the cycles. And so I was very happy with how things went this year. How exactly did your uh, experiences over those two cycles differ? I I gather that you had, uh, I think, quite a few offers to choose from in this uh, second cycle. Um, How did that go relative to that first cycle back in 2020? This year, I, I was kind of going in with like a top tier, I suppose, of USC, MIT, and NYU for various reasons. And I ended up having offers from USC and MIT. The MIT one came from the wait list and got rejected from NYU, of course, but don't we all? (laughs) So that was from about 14 applications, uh, whereas in 2020, I put out maybe 20, 22 or something applications and didn't even get any wait lists. And so, yeah, it it was a very different result. So besides the fact that you did fewer applications on the second cycle, what did you do differently the second time around? Yeah, well, it's kind of hard to isolate what exactly might have made the difference. But I think there are very ob- things that are now very obvious that would have made uh, some difference. But in 2020, I was coming straight out of undergrad. I was coming from, in philosophy prestige terms, a worse university. And so I had people writing letters that uh, wouldn't have like an international reputation. And I think just generally doing a master's uh, helps a lot, especially for international students trying to get into America. I mean, the one thing you'll you'll see is that even though, for instance, Australians are have quite a prominent role in in philosophy around the world, there are not many in graduate programs relative to uh, the number of professional uh, philosophers um, that are at these top universities, and so 
I think you generally find that people come from prestigious programs and there are just fewer prestigious programs where, you know, the admissions committee can trust uh, what a grade from there means um, if you're coming from a place like Australia. Yeah, and I think probably the main difference was just having people write the letters who have a a strong international presence. (laughs) Well, I mentioned this because on a previous episode, we had Jordan Scott talk to us about, uh, you know, what he thought was an important factor in in getting into uh, the PhD program he got into, which was Rutgers, which is a very good program. And he said that a good amount of luck played a role. And I believe uh, when we emailed about this, when we talked about this uh, earlier in the summer, you said you disagree with his take on luck. So I'm, I'm curious if you want to say why you disagree. Yeah, maybe I can kind of be the balance to, to his perspective. But I think my experience shows that there seems to be something that these admissions committees are, are latching onto, given that I you know, did so poorly and then so well in, in another year. But Jordan's great. His episode was great as well. And I actually met him when I visited Rutgers this year. Oh, great. Um, and he was uh, such a nice guy. But I, I don't think that that's right. I think that the things that admissions committees are looking for, maybe they don't track, you know, what a, a good someone who's going to turn out to be a good philosopher um, actually is. But I think they track things that are not super opaque to us and uh, they reliably track them. Even if these things, you know, are not relevant to actual philosophical ability, I think that it's it's not lucky in in that sense that you can do something about it. Um, and I think some like evidence of this is, I mean, maybe we want to build two models of the world. One's called the luck model. One's called the no luck model. And we can see which one rea- uh, matches reality better. So in the luck model, everyone who is admitted is drawn out of a hat. And so you know you've got. 300, 400 applicants per year to these programs that have five to 10 places. Some have more, like I think Oxford and Toronto have more. Some have fewer. I think uh, like Yale had like two this year. But generally speaking, if we, if we build our model to, to simplify like that. And so in this model, like nobody's going to really have uh, two offers because if they get one, they're going to have an independent probability, very small probability of getting a second. And so the universities are only going to release as many offers as they have places because they're not they're going to know that the people who they give offers to are very likely going to accept but then in the low no luck model we might have where all of the programs are tracking exactly the same metrics and we would expect you know everyone to really have uh, multiple offers and the universities would have to give out many more places than they have uh, offers than they have places for from my experience, I think that especially once you account for, you know, different universities are, are better fitted for different people. And so they're not going to get the exact same pool of prospective students every year. But it seems like even the, the best grad programs give out far more offers than they have places for. In my experience, the students who have offers at one place very likely have uh, offers at multiple places. And so it seems like there's something going on here where the admissions committees are very reliably tracking certain indicators. Well, I guess I'd like to dive a little deeper then into those indicators, into the kinds of things that prospective applicants can be doing to maximise their chances of getting into good programmes. And I'm sure you'll be a very good person to give your insights into this, given your experiences in the most recent cycle and those offers that you did get. So I'd like to start with, I guess, what's a preliminary question, which is about how prospective students can go about selecting the programs that they apply to in the first place and thereafter, should they be so lucky, how they can go about choosing between multiple offers. Uh, do you have any advice on, on that kind of topic? 
Yeah, good. Um, I mean, I should say that many people did better than me. And so <laughs> I'm not going to be um, the uh, a prophet here for uh, how to get into a good program. Um, and I also might say that the kinds of programs that I had high on my list um, were the programs that I did well at. And so places that I don't think I would have been a good fit at, but applied anyway. So like Harvard, for instance, I like didn't get in. So I can probably give better advice for the people who are interested in the same kinds of programs as, as I am. But I pretty much applied very heavily based on the PGR, the Philosophical Gourmet Report, which is the reputational rankings of the top 50 or so programs in the world. Uh, of course, this is very controversial, but I don't think it should be. I think that, you know, it gives a, a very clear data point and like that data point is useful. Coming out of undergrad, at least, if I were to look at like all of the, the PhD programs in the world, I would like have no idea which ones are the top ones. And I would only know a tiny subset of the faculty at these programs. And so I wouldn't really have anything to base it on. And so this tells us what the other professional philosophers in the field think are the, the strongest faculties. And so this year I applied to, in that group of the top 16, 17 uh, programs in the world, I applied to 14 of them. I didn't apply to some because I didn't think the fit was great. Um, so like UCLA, I didn't apply to because they're kind of more historically focused than I'm mainly interested in. And there's not many people who work in my exact area. And then other programs uh, like CUNY, the City University of New York Graduate Center, I didn't apply to because uh, apparently the living conditions are not super good for the PhD students there. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that I was well aware of coming out of my master's because I knew people on the inside, so to speak. But coming out of my undergrad, um, I totally would have taken an offer from there. Based on what people say, I probably wouldn't have been very happy. And so I think that that's the, the most useful resource, the Gourmet Report. But then I also think, depending on your fit, you know, you would look at who you would potentially work with. You'd have some idea of that. I think in American programs, it's less important because you're going to do two years of coursework before you even start your research. And you'll very likely change your mind about what you actually want to focus on. And so, like, I think at Oxford, like, you should be focusing on your, like, supervisors a lot more if you're applying for the DPhil, but less so in America. And then just talking to people, you know, um, who actually understand, like, who the, the right people you would want to work with um, and who the potentially the big names in the field are is going to be important. And so that's kind of how I picked the programs that I ended up applying to. Definitely. I mean, and obviously for any of our listeners who are familiar with the Philosophical Gourmet Report, another aspect of it that's interesting is just how universities that maybe have like global prestige, they might not be as highly ranked as other universities that maybe aren't well known in the world, but actually have the top, you know, PhD programs, right? Like Rutgers is in the top three, but I don't know if it's the like has global prestige compared to like Harvard or Yale or one of these Ivy Leagues, right? So that's another thing that ends up being super informative to me. I didn't know that uh, before I looked at that resource. So I think it's, it's good that you highlighted that. And I guess just going into another aspect of the application program, talking about statements of purpose or personal statements, I think they're called as well. How do you think students should frame statements of purpose and how did you frame yours in particular? Yeah, so I wrote a statement of purpose that was incredibly uh, dry and short. <laughs> I very much believe that uh, with the statement of purpose, you should first do no harm. The reason I think that is there are very broadly two stages that the admissions committees go through. First, they have, you know, 400 applicants that they need to get down to a manageable amount. 
And so unfortunately, most of the applicants don't even have their files read very carefully. And so I think the statement of purpose plays a much stronger role in that first culling stage, right? And then no one's getting into places based on their statement of purpose. But, you know, you say something that either makes the admissions committee member cringe or, you know, triggers their prejudices or something, then you could very well like be excluded based on that. And it's like, it may not be fair, but like, that's just kind of the reality of the the situation. And so I very much advocate people writing a, a, a boring, dry statement of purpose and then hoping to stand out in the other areas. And to be honest, I find that kind of reassuring to hear because I think if I had any regrets from the application process, one of them would be not putting enough of my personality, I feel, into my personal statement or statement of purpose. I feel I also might wrote mine in, in quite a dry, matter of fact, not wanting to take any risks way. So I'm reassured to hear that you think that's actually the <laughs> right way to go. I have another component, of course, of the application portfolio, as it were. And I think the one that I hear from my experience, I think people tend to say is just about the most important one, the one on which your office can hinge, is, of course, the writing sample. So I think one thing I'd quite like to hear perspective on is how prospective students can choose an essay, how they should select one of the essays they've been working on as their writing sample. What makes for a good writing sample? Yeah, in terms of your comment about the statement of purpose, I think that Oxford and um, the places I got into are probably pretty similar in their strengths and in the way they do philosophy. So maybe it just meant that we screwed ourselves over for the rest of the the (laughs) program. But yeah, the the writing sample, um, I did two very different writing samples in my first round of applications. And this one, in the first one, I did something much more creative and less, you know, grounded in the, the contemporary literature um, I kind of built like an epistemological system and um, that, I, you know, was kind of impressive, but like not very publishable and like not very conducive to showing that you can actually do research and like solve problems and that kind of thing. And so this year I did a much more boring paper. It was actually completely negative. It was just focusing on this strategy of discounting small probabilities that we talked about and just gave uh, like four reasons that we shouldn't do that and then potential responses and why those responses don't work. And so I, I had a lot more luck with that, but I, I certainly think that the fact that, you know, I was responding to papers that were published in the last five years or whatever was a good thing and that it was much more honed in and less kind of all over the place. Uh, it was doing it. It was very tight. It, it did what it, what it said it did, and that was it. Right. And then I guess turning to, is that the final like important aspect of the uh, application process? How much of a difference does the letter writer make? And I, I might push you on this because I kind of think what Jordan was saying earlier about luck might be important in the sense of the luck of the institution that you're at and the professors that you have there. So maybe let's bring that back and then I'll ask you, yeah, how much of a difference does a letter writer make? Yeah, good. Okay. So that articulation of luck, I can actually get behind (laughs) because I think that it plays an outsized role in in the admissions process. I did two very different things. I came from a very unknown university coming out of my undergrad and didn't do well. And I did a master's working with, you know, very recognizable names. And so to be honest, the Uh, what I think made the biggest difference for me was having my first letter written by John Hawthorne, who, you know, was one of the reasons I chose to come to USC. And so just having a name where everyone, you know, recognize it, I guess they trust it. You know, again, this might not be fair, but it, it seems to play a big difference. And it also, I think, indirectly plays a role in that 
the advice you get for your applications because these people who are on the inside actually know how to frame your application, what kinds of things to use for your writing sample and have you know much better answers to all of these questions than, than you probably do. And so I think there's there's almost like a multiplier effect with the letter writer that you have. They're not only going to help you directly because uh, the people just trust the, the letters coming from those people for whatever reason, but yeah, also because they'll help you with your application. And I think that also makes a big difference. Yeah, that all sounds about right. I think the final thing that I wanted to uh, ask Mitchell was given in particular your experience over the two application cycles, is there anything that you would say to any listeners who have been shut out in a recent application cycle? Is there any advice that you would give to them moving forward? Yes, I think they should, um, if they've come straight from undergrad, they should do a master's. I think there's this idea that if you have any PhD offer, uh, you should take it because you don't know if you'll get another one. Whereas you shouldn't do a master's because that's always going to like lead to more uncertainty down the road. And I think that's completely wrong. I completely disagree with that. I think that almost everyone's prospects improve once they've done the master's. You know, they've got two more years to work on a writing sample. The writing sample is probably a completely different thing because they're actually doing stuff that's closer to writing real research papers. And if they can do a master's uh, at a place where, you know, a recognisable university and a place where they could work with people who have recognisable names. Um, And so that's what I did. I did my master's at um, ACU in Australia, um, at the Dianoia Institute of Philosophy. And so I found that that made a big difference for me. Mitchell Barrington, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.